0: Welcome back to the Dirt Show the vicious Hammer attack on Paul Pelosi by what appears to be an, an extremist or a deranged uh, person brings out the worst uh, in America at a time we're so deeply deeply divided. First of all, the attack itself uh, represents the, the movement from extremism verbally to extremism physically to to violence. Um, uh, but second, the result of this has been for conspiracy theorists to really go nuts. I mean, even more so than they usually are. I mean, conspiracy theorists have argued that, A, um, this was a false flag operation. Really, this was the Democrats who staged this operation in order to um, blame it on the Republicans. Uh, sounds like what the Nazis did when they uh, burned the, the, um, parliament house. Um, second, they say, oh no, 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 it's, it, 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 it was real, but it was a, a fight between a gay prostitute and, and Paul Pelosi, his customer. One of the networks said, when they caught the perpetrator, he was in his underwear and that proves it. Um, turns out that, that, that wasn't, uh, uh, true, uh, Others say, well, of course, it was an ordinary crime, just a house burglary, and therefore it reflects on the Democrats for being soft on, on crime. The one thing about conspiracy theorists, they don't care about the evidence. They have a theory, and they're gonna make the facts fit the theory, whether they do or not. And that's what is being done here. There are conspiracy theorists on, on both sides of the political spectrum. Ilan Omer, the extremist anti-Semite, Uh, in the Senate uh, in the the House of Representatives she believes that everything that's wrong in the world is the fault of Israel and ultimately the fault of Jews because they give the Benjamins the $100 bills to bribe essentially members of Congress. It's the Benjamins baby! Not principle, not political identification, not uh, the fact that America and Israel have much in common. It's the Benjamins baby! Conspiracy conspiracy uh, theories. And um, it's so upsetting when when every event has this kind of an explanation. When when uh, people are on radio and television saying that the mass shooting of, of children didn't really happen. Or these dead kids are really alive and walking around. Well, we saw what a jury did with that one. Um, and you get other, other extremist, extremist views. Um, That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's the extremism on both sides. What this reflects also is that the extremism is spreading to the center. Perhaps the best example of that is the New York Times. The New York Times has a narrative about everything. Um, And that's okay on your editorial page, the Wall Street Journal, for whom I occasionally write. I wrote an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. They may have a point of view, although they allow lots of points of view to be expressed. I'm a liberal Democrat, and they welcome me on their pages. Uh, But they don't let their point of view influence their news reporting. You read the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and you don't know what the political orientation of the writers is. You don't know it from the selection of stories. You don't know it from the use of adjectives or adverbs. You don't know it from the content of the material. Read, you don't even have to read the New York Times. You just see what the subject is and you know exactly what they're going to say and how they're going to put it and and what side they're going to take on their news reporting. The same thing is true, of course, of some media stations. Um, as I've said before, Walter Cronkite probably could not get a job on most um, television stations and in most newspapers today because he was too balanced, too objective, too neutral To nonpartisan, you know, the idea of being nonpartisan has has gone out the window. When the the great justice, John Harlan, um, ascended to the bench, uh, he decided he would never again vote, even though he had views, but he would never again vote because he didn't want to be influenced in his judicial decisions by anything political, by, and he didn't want the perception to be out there that he was a Republican justice. He was appointed by a Republican president, but he never regarded himself as a Republican justice, and he never voted according to what side would benefit from his decision. He was a staunchly conservative man. I went to his house once uh, to uh, have him sign papers in a death penalty case, and I got there. It was uh, late. It was like 10 o'clock. I thought dinner would be over. It was; They were just halfway through their main course, just him and his wife, both wearing Dinner clothing and 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 sipping, you know, sherry and, and um, um, very conservative, very traditional. But he had a case coming before him in which some idiot came into the courthouse wearing a jacket that said "fuck the draft," and he was arrested. Um, and Justice Harlan wrote the opinion reversing the conviction, saying, "One man's obscenity is another man's lyric. I'm not going to sit in judgment." over how people protest the war in Vietnam. It was a terrific First Amendment case written by a conservative. You can imagine how painful it must have been for him to write that opinion. I mean, he had to actually use the word. Um, When the case was argued in the Supreme Court, the uh, Chief Justice had issued a warning to the lawyers not to use the word in court. And of course, the lawyer for the defendant used the word immediately and said, see, the nation survives. Uh, it was important for him to use that word. But my point is different. My point is I, I'm never one of these guys who likes the good old days. The good old days I couldn't get a job in a Wall Street firm because I was Jewish. Uh, there were no black or women or gays, openly gay people in my law school class. Those weren't the good old days, but there were some good parts of those days. And today there's some very part bad parts Uh, of of those uh, days. One of the good parts is that people got along. I recently went to my 60th reunion at Yale Law School. I started 63 years ago, with my first teacher being Guido Calabresi, And I sat with the surviving members of my class, not very many of them, and um, we all reminded each other that we were conservatives, we were liberals, we had different points of view, we were Christians, we were Jews. Uh, We all got along. We all respected each other. We just got along. Nobody would ever not talk to somebody because they voted for somebody they disagreed with. And later on in life, nobody would do what has happened to me not talking to me because I represented Donald Trump on the floor of the United States uh, Senate. Uh, Today, just before this uh, podcast, I lectured to a class at the Scalia Law School. Now, you know, Nino and I were friends. We would drink together. We disagreed about everything. I knew his father. I disagreed with his father about everything. But why does that have to influence our friendship? We could talk about opera. We can talk about Italy. We can talk about Israel. He and I were in Israel together. We spoke. We argued with each other. Um, But we got along. I would never try to cancel him for anything he did or said, but now if you don't like somebody, your first thing is to cancel them. And the second thing is if you're an extremist to threaten him physically. And that's what's going on today. And of course, the idea of threatening people is being used as an excuse when Palestinian and other groups banned Zionist speakers at Berkeley from speaking. They said they did it because Palestinian students do not feel safe in the presence of ideas espoused by Zionists. Well, you're not entitled to feel safe against ideas. You're entitled to feel safe against physical violence, but not not in favor of your own ideas. Your ideas are vulnerable to attack and challenge, particularly in a university setting, and that's the way it, uh, it, it should be. So what are we going to do about this? Obviously, we'll see a trial or a plea of guilty. In the um, Pelosi case, there's uh, um, a lot of answers that we haven't gotten. I looked at the affidavit that was filed and it didn't answer some of the hard questions. I still have some questions, but not questions that I expect to be answered in a conspiratorial way. Pelosi was hit on the head by a hammer that the two of them, pardon me, I'm still wearing a cast on my wrist, uh, that the two of them were struggling over, apparently the, the perpetrator came into the house with a hammer and with um, tie cords to kidnap and break the knee of um, Nancy Pelosi, who wasn't there. At least that's the theory that the government is presenting. But there are a lot of questions. How did the perpetrator get to attack and hit Pelosi with the policeman standing just feet away? Why didn't the policeman protect him? It's possible that it just happened so suddenly, and it looked like it was just a a struggle over a hammer, but I would think the police could have done a better job. To me, the harder question is this. Pelosi managed to get into the bathroom and use his cell phone to call 9-11. And the police were going to come in minutes. My question is, why didn't Pelosi lock himself into the bathroom? I don't know whether locks, maybe they weren't. Um, why didn't he try to hide and escape? Uh, why did he Engage this guy, and apparently they went downstairs and upstairs. There were a lot of questions that have to be answered, but the first instinct is to answer them logically and rationally, not to do what Congresswoman Green did some years ago when the forest fires broke out in in uh, Northern California. She said, "Oh, we know who did that. It was the Rothschilds, that Jewish family, sent uh, a space laser." Satellite from outer space, and the laser uh, was aimed at the uh, forests to cause forest fires because that's what the Jews do. Uh, You know, she's a member of Congress. You know, talk about conspiracy theories. There are nutcases on both sides, and there are extremists on both sides, and there are bigots on both sides. And people write me all the time saying, How can you be a Democrat? Look at who Elon O'Mara is and who. The squad is, and my answer is, look at the Republicans. Uh, you got Green, you got the guy who's running for governor of, in, in, in Pennsylvania, you got a couple of other uh, members of Congress, both sides are not doing a good enough job in marginalizing their extremists. And you know, it was Edmund Burke who said, for evil to succeed, all that's necessary is for good men, good people to do nothing and uh, too many good people, too many good Democrats are doing nothing, too many good Republicans are doing nothing. They don't wanna lose votes. If they attack the conspiracy theorists on the right, they're gonna lose some right-wing voters. And if they attack uh, the squad on the left, they'll lose some radical uh, voters. And you know my position. My position has always been, if you're a person of the left or if you're a Democrat, your primary obligation is to criticize extremists on your side. It's too easy to criticize extremists on the other side. That doesn't take any courage. If you're a centrist Republican, it's your obligation to criticize the extremists on the right side. President Trump did not do a good enough job of that in Charlottesville. He did condemn the Nazis, yes, but uh, he should have gone out of his way to focus more on uh, people uh, who were chanting, you will not replace us. Um, you know, he did say he condemns uh, that form of, of, of extremism and Nazism, but I think he could have done a better job, just as I think that Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer and others could do a much better job in, in condemning and, and marginalizing and delegitimating the squad and people on the extreme, extreme left who also have uh, bigotry in their blood and in their background I don't mean in their blood genetically. I mean, it comes from inside. It seems like they are bigoted um, 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 deeply, um, but I don't mean to suggest blood as a matter of race or a matter of genetics or anything like that. So please disregard that, 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 that phrase. Um, uh, let, me, let me amend it and say that they are deeply bigoted uh, and it seems to be something that they're not going to be talked out of. And um, we have to do something about that. And we have to do something about uh, these extremist theories. Now, of course, there's a big issue coming up. Uh, Elon Musk has bought Twitter. We think nobody knows exactly what's going on there. But he seems to have bought uh, Twitter. And he, the other day, recycled a tweet that seemed a little nutty. Uh, And uh, is he going to really allow the most extreme forms of racism, bigotry, and anti-Semitism on Twitter. Uh, and would that be a good thing? Uh, he said he's appointing a commission to advise him on this. I'd like to see who's on the, the commission. That usually determines something. But I feel a little allergic to um, uh, official, organized, structured uh, censorship because I experienced that. When I was litigating cases and fighting for human rights in the Soviet Union. They had an organization called Glovelit, which anything published had to be passed through and approved. There had to be a stamp saying approved by Glovelit," which is why dissidents created samizdat, self-published material that didn't have to go through Glovelit. It was illegal, but when I went to um, the Soviet Union um, on several occasions, people were smuggling in fax machines and um, other kinds of things that would um, allow self-publication. I brought a copy of Exodus because a lot of the people there wanted that. And within days, they had had typed the whole thing in Russian. And (laughs) interesting enough, I always love the story. They left out a chapter. um, And I, I asked them why. And they said, well, you know, we're Jewish. And we didn't want to give our readers the chapter in which the Jewish Israeli marries the Christian woman. Censorship! Everybody wants a censor. Um, you know, when you ask people, when I used to have a class, and I would say, how many people support freedom of speech? Everybody gets hands up. Then how many would support it for Holocaust deniers? Hands down. How many support it for people who make racist comments? Down. How many people support it for pornography? Down. By the end of the class, There are more exceptions than there are supporters of the First Amendment. And I think that's a a problem in America. The same thing is true when I defend people. People say, oh, everybody's entitled to offense. But not Nazis, not communists, not Donald Trump, not O.J. Simpson, not Mike Tyson. Uh, If you go down my old list of clients, mostly they would say, no, you shouldn't defend them. Maybe Mia Farrow. Uh, But I think many of the people would say, I shouldn't have defended the people I defended. Well, I'd have had no uh, career if I only defended people who people liked and who were popular. Those are the people who least need my defense. The people who most need my defense are the people who can't get another lawyer and people who are um, um, up against it. And that's what I've done for close to 60 years. And I hope to continue to do for as long as the good Lord gives me the power to do it. So uh, yesterday I didn't read any letters because I was so tied up, so wrapped up in that um, issue about um, you know, affirmative action and race-based affirmative action and all of that. And we got some letters about that today. So today I promised that we would uh, we would read some letters and so let's let's do that. Um, here, here's a, a cute one. It deals with reparations. Will I ever receive reparations for affirmative action? Uh, The government gave my job and my college degree to someone else because of the color of their skin or their gender. Blatant discrimination. Look, it's a zero-sum game. Uh, It doesn't have to be. When Harvard decided that it basically wanted to have 13% of the class, and that's what it's been historically, to be people of color... um, I said, why don't we just increase the size of the class by thirteen percent instead of taking sixteen hundred freshmen? Um, why don't you take, you know, eighteen hundred uh, freshmen? Um, that way, nobody's kept out because of race-based affirmative action. Oh no, no, that would change the nature of Harvard. Eighteen hundred instead of sixteen hundred. Well, it should. It should let let the the consequences be borne widely by everybody in the class, not by the poor kid from Appalachia who struggled uh, with, with parents who uh, were addicted and, 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 and physically violent and who went to a terrible school. Why should that person suffer in relation to a person of color, whose father was a hedge fund billionaire and whose mother was a federal judge? Um, There's not going to be any reparations for that. And I don't think there should be reparations for it, but, I just think that race-based um, admission decisions are always wrong, have always been wrong. I've taken that position since the beginning. I wrote a Law Review article, as I mentioned, 1979. I followed Justice Douglas, the most liberal justice in the history of the Supreme Court, in condemning the use of uh, race and race alone for admissions. And uh, uh, I just don't think it's fair because For every group that's underrepresented, there has to be a group that's overrepresented. It's a zero-sum game. And if you start knocking down the number of applicants of people who are, quote, overrepresented, you end up with quotas based on religion and race. That's what they had in Russia. That's what they had in Europe. That's what uh, we fought against for for years and years and years, and I will continue to fight against it, even though it puts me out of what today is the liberal mainstream. I'm the liberal, they're not. A liberal should not be supporting the use of race in making important decisions involving people's uh, future. They shouldn't have supported it in 1943 when the Supreme Court allowed race to be used as a criteria for confining 110,000 mostly Americans of Japanese descent in detention centers. It was wrong then, it was wrong now. Brown versus Board of Education was right. It said race cannot be a factor in deciding on education. Now we have to implement that. It's not easy to implement. It's very tough. You have de facto discrimination, we have to fight that. But we have to fight it in a way that produces a colorblind society, not a society in which identity politics uh, trumps uh, meritocracy. And so it's been a position I've never changed. People say, oh, I'm becoming more conservative because I defended President Trump. Well, I am not becoming more conservative. I'm still a liberal. I still support gay rights, women's rights, uh, climate control, reasonable gun control and uh, um, uh, all the other issues, uh, including not using race. That's a liberal position. Um, And I think conservatives will agree with that. And I've always said true, genuine liberals like me and true, genuine conservatives like William Buckley have a lot more in common than either of us do with the extremes of our party. Buckley was courageous in marginalizing uh, Pat Buchanan. And I've tried to marginalize um, Norm Chomsky and Finkelstein and others. Um, uh, We are the true liberals and conservatives. And I refuse to give up that. That uh, title to uh, extremists uh, on, on either side. Mr. Dershowitz, the US Constitution is clear about racial discrimination. Bending the law one way to make up for others, bending it another way only ensures the law will always be bent. The SCOTUS is to uphold the law, and not justify political. Uh, attitudes. Uh, look, like I agree with that, but every institution of government is influenced by the outside world. When you listen to the questions yesterday in the Supreme Court, those were not the questions that would have been asked 30 years ago, and those were not the answers that would have been given 30 years ago. Uh, the justices, isolated as they are in ivory towers uh, in the beautiful Supreme Court building, are still influenced by what they see on television, and what they read, in the newspapers, and uh, uh, that uh, obviously uh, can can make them decide cases in a certain way. And let's see what happens. Okay, uh, Dershowitz felt compelled to. Oh, uh, this is about people have the right to know. People have the right to know about the Supreme Court and who who, who leaked. So this is a typical typical rumble one. Um, Does the public have a right to know why Alan Dershowitz felt compelled to defend Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, they do. And I'll tell you why. Because um, he needed a lawyer, and he had trouble getting a good lawyer, when he was accused of very serious, heinous offenses. And that's who I specialize in defending. Uh, Many of my clients have been women and victims of uh, people like Jeffrey Epstein. But I'm going to continue to represent the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world. even though it cost me enormously because as the result of that, a woman who didn't like uh, the fact that I had represented him and gotten him a, a good deal, he thought it was a terrible deal. Everybody else thought it was a good deal. Um, because somebody didn't like that, she you know, made up a story and falsely accused me of something I didn't do and never met her and never heard of her. And so the question continues. Perhaps it's connected to the fact he frequented uh, Lolita Express, During the relevant period of time, I was never on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. I was never on his plane with a young woman. Uh, The evidence is clear. We have all the travel records. I was never to uh, his island. I was never to his ranch during the relevant period of time. So you can, you know, make up stories. You can be conspiracy theorists if you want. But the facts are clear and the facts will be proved uh, when the opportunity arises to prove them. Okay. This is a good question. Given the real possibility that a justice could be assassinated to influence the outcome of a case, could Congress pass a law so that in the event of a Supreme Court assassination, the nomination could not be made to replace him until after the next presidential election? Such a law would have dissuaded the Kavanaugh attempt earlier this year. Thanks, and I absolutely love your show. Well, thanks for loving my show. It's really interesting. Whether or not such a law would be uh, constitutional, such a law would be uh, wise. Um, clearly, nobody should benefit from assassinations. And as I've told you before, of the dozens of assassinations in world history, only a handful have really impacted uh, the world. Lincoln's probably more than any other. Well, maybe Archduke Ferdinand um, started World War One. Would it have started anyway? Nobody knows for sure. But the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand caused indirectly or directly the death of tens of millions of, of people. Lincoln's assassination produced the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of Jim Crow. It was very, very serious. Rabin's assassination um, probably uh, ended any realistic prospect of a peaceful two-state solution with the the Palestinians. And of course, that was the purpose. The purpose of killing Rabin was to prevent him from signing any kind of a peace treaty with the Palestinians in the same way that the assassination of Lincoln was designed to end Reconstruction. Um, A Supreme Court justice has never been assassinated. We've had a handful of presidents assassinated. Uh, John Kennedy's assassination made absolutely no difference as far as I can tell historically. Robert Kennedy, nobody knows for sure. Martin Luther King, speculated. we we can't be positive. Garfield, nobody really knows. Uh, The first presidential assassination in American history failed. Um, uh, A guy named Richard Lawrence walked up to Andrew Jackson, who was then a very popular president, but very controversial, and he had two revolvers, and he pulled out each of the two revolvers. They were on the steps of the Capitol building. He had just finished making, I think, either the State of the Union message or another important message to Congress. And he was surrounded by cabinet members. It sounds like the beginning of a motion picture, and it probably should be a motion picture. And Richard Lawrence pulled the trigger of the first gun, aiming directly at the heart of Andrew Jackson. And the gun failed to go off. And then Richard Lawrence said, aha, that's why I have a second gun. And he pulled the trigger of the second gun, and it failed to go off. And cabinet members jumped on him, arrested him. The guns were then taken to the Treasury Department, which was the place that law enforcement operated out of in those days in protecting of the president. And they fired the guns to see if they worked. And both of them worked. Nobody knows for sure why the guns didn't work outside. It was a humid day. And there was a theory that the powder was not dry when the two pistols were fired at Jackson, but it was dry when it was fired experimentally in the Justice Department. And indeed, uh, Richard Lawrence was arrested and put on trial. And um, he was found not guilty, not guilty by reason of insanity, and ended up being locked up in, in prison. He was prosecuted by an obscure lawyer named Francis Scott Key, part-time lyrics writer. Uh, made himself a big name for writing something called the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, he was the prosecutor, ironically. His son became the U.S. attorney, uh, and his son was assassinated um, by the husband of a woman who he had been having an affair with. All right, that's American history, fascinating Um Trials of the 19th century, I write about them in some of my uh, books and and introductions to other books. Fascinating trials uh, of the 19th century, more fascinating than trials of the 20th century. Probably the most fascinating trial of all was the trial of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was never tried for killing Alexander Hamilton because he went to New Jersey to do it. And New Jersey wasn't prosecuting people for killing people in duels. He just rode across the Hudson River to uh, the Palisades. That's where the duel occurred. And then he rode back to the United States. He was the Vice President of the United States at the time. Would have raised the fascinating issue. Could New Jersey uh, prosecute, or could the federal government? Pro- he was not an office holder at the time, Hamilton, but Burr was. Could they prosecute a um, Vice President of the United States while well, he was still in office? He was still in office when he killed Hamilton people. Forget that. Uh, but he was tried five or six years later for treason, treason, because he tried to raise an army to take over the United States. Uh, the jury ultimately found him unproven. Guilt was unproven for lack of evidence. Boy, was that an interesting trial presided over by John Marshall. The trial of the um, assassins of Lincoln were unfair trials. Uh, they were kangaroo courts, military courts, and it included a woman uh, who was hanged for um, uh, putting up the assassins without real evidence that she was part of the conspiracy, but uh, very, very interesting uh, trials. So there were fascinating trials in the trial of uh, the man who killed uh, Francis Scott Key's uh, son was a fascinating trial. So you'll always hear about all these fascinating trials if you tune into the DIRS show. I know about trials. I probably, here I'm gonna brag, I have read more trial transcripts than any person in the history of the world. I guarantee you that's correct. Nobody ever in history has read more trial transcripts. Why? Because I have to read a trial transcript every time I do an appeal, and I've done 250 or so appeals. Also, I write introductions to a series called The Great Trials in History. So I've written about a hundred of those introductions. So I read a hundred transcripts of those trials. So I challenge anybody to name somebody who's read more trial transcripts. So if there's one thing I know about, it's trial transcripts. And as an appellate lawyer, you do an autopsy on trial transcripts because if you're an appellate lawyer, you're always representing a defendant who's lost below. And if he's lost below in a criminal case, only one side gets to appeal. If the government appeals, they uh, lose, they can't appeal. So I'm always defending people who are convicted of crime. And I'm always doing an autopsy, figuring out why they haven't been convicted. See you tomorrow.